came over to me in your beautiful play was how, in a way, they're quite alike, father and daughter, but it, it's, it's the, that generational thing and the thing of being the lone father. He's so protective and he's got a lot to protect, hasn't he? He does. I mean, Jenny, from everything I've researched, her dream was to follow what Ben had done. And so they were exactly alike. And that was the hardest thing for Ben because he knew what a price he paid for his activism and he didn't want to see his daughter go through it. And, of course, in the generation since he had done it, it had become even more dangerous and, and you know, as they were adding their bodies to it and, and everything else. Yeah. So let's, let's just focus on him for a moment because we are actually speaking, interestingly, more or less on the anniversary of Kristallnacht and it's because he had spent time in Ger Germany as a journalist, presumably, that he was right there to see what was happening and trying to warn people, bef long before that, in fact, about, about what might happen and, and, in fact, did the Holocaust, in other words. Ben himself was not an observant Jew. He was never religious. But what happened was he got wind of what was going on in Germany in the camps and people being exterminated, and it drove him crazy that the government was not recognizing it. And, the government, and he was told by the Jewish leadership to be quiet because the worst thing that could happen was if it came out, Americans would perceive the war being a Jewish war and would not support it. And so they asked him to stand down. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't do that knowing that people were being exterminated. And so he set about to put together this show, We, we Will Never Die. And it was very controversial. As he says in the play, the night before they were supposed to put it on, he got a call from Rabbi Stephen Weiss saying, you cannot do this show, shut it down. And he basically told him to where to get off. He, he, was, he was not going to uh, stop it, and he didn't. They took it on the road, and literally within six months, the United States kind of was forced to recognize the Holocaust, and they put in the War Refugees Act, which basically you know, provided for people to be able to at least start realizing that Jews were, were, were being exterminated, and we had to do something though we didn't quite open our refugees to them, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, that's what happened. It's, of course, interestingly, now it chimes with now as well, doesn't it, as Europe faces this massive refugee crisis, that, you know, the, those sort of, but we do, I suppose we are listening well, to Well, it's exactly points. the opposite now. Mm -hmm. Instead of people yeah. coming from Europe mm -hmm. to, to Africa, yeah. people are coming from Africa to Europe. It's mm -hmm. exactly the opposite. Mm -hmm. I mean, then Palestine was controlled by the British. Mm -hmm. There was a thing called the White Paper, which basically tried to keep an equal balance of Jews and Arabs, which prevented any Jewish uh, uh, immigration from Europe, which sealed off the border to all those Jews trying to escape or, or, or after the war being displaced and have no place to go. Mm. Well, what's in interesting there is that he's got a cause that, although it, it may have undermined part of his life, it's a very clear cut, isn't it? And she is really, Jenny's following in his footsteps, she, she's a warrior, isn't she? But she's more of, I suppose we call it an eco-warrior now, isn't it, in a way. Does he, as you say, he's perceiving the dangers. Is her cause as obvious? No, her, her cause is a little bit more general because they really were, the Julian and Judith Beck were anarchists. Mm. They were trying to bring down the way the world exists, you know, to stop mm. capitalism, basically. Uh, uh, they were trying to, you know, bring awareness to the bourgeoisie which was, you know, the great middle class to, to basically give up the shopping, the buying stuff, mm -hmm. and, and to become much more of a, a socialistic society. But 
looking at society today, then maybe they're right. I mean, again, it, it's so weird um, to have seen this play this week with all these things that are happening. We've we've just had this march in London by these people called, who call themselves anonymous, and they marched on the fifth of November. Right. 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 Yeah, yes. yeah. And they're allowed to march, but then but only for a certain amount yes, of time. Yes, the Occupy travel. movement, yeah. Uh, yeah, and they've got masks on. And it's actually quite scary because we right. got caught up in it, actually. So yes. um, co coming out of a, a different theatre. That is a your, descendant yeah, of yeah. what the Living Theatre was doing. Exactly, that's Absolutely. what I'm saying. So yes. it still lives. In fact, last night at the show, there was a gentleman here who said he saw the Living Theatre when they were in London. Mm. This must have been 1960, I would say 1965. Mm. And they, he came to see a play. They, it was a three-act play. They did two acts, and they said, that's all we're going to do tonight. Come back tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And people came back the next day, and they said, you know what? We're not going to do the play. We're going to march on this prison. And the audience marched on the prison with them to protest the conditions at the prison. Mm -hmm. And that's what they were trying to basically mm -hmm. turn theater to stimulate, confront people into acting, mm -hmm. into, into acting up. And something else that's happening this Again. week is the Belarus Free Theater is visiting, and they're doing pop-up theater. You're supposed to know where they are from a text or something, because in Belarus, theater isn't free right you know you you they they are there's a clampdown so, it, so it's, it's a just flash mob theater it's a yes. flash mob theater uh, and uh, you know it seems to me uh, that you you your play is unbelievably timely oh that's good to know i mean uh you know when i set out to write it i just really felt i wanted people to know about these two people i felt they had been forgotten by history and i thought they were really important and and they had a story i thought was relatable because at its heart it's a father-daughter story and it's uh you know you strip away that it's it, it's what what it is and but I really wanted people to certainly remember Ben because he had gotten, because he had taken the alternate positions from the establishment, he really had not been remembered for what he had done, especially in bringing light to the Holocaust. And that now is changing. Isn't it weird? I mean, let's just focus on him for a bit then. And let's just say, isn't it strange that he's responsible for so much wit, dry wit, one-liners, brilliant um, plays like the front page and um the 20th century yeah yeah, yeah. yeah all sorts and, and some really dry films as well i mean i would say his wit is very dry yes mm. well exactly i mean you know part of the band well think about gunga din even things like gunga din with all the all the all the you know snappy dialogue and that all the Cary grant films he did his gal friday mm. and and then i also think of some of the stuff he did with hitchcock like lifeboat which i particularly love and rope um, some amazing, amazing things he did. Notorious also with Hitchcock. Um, you know, but Ben is someone who really did not like Hollywood. He did not uh, have any respect for it, but he liked making money. So he, a lot of the films he never got credit for. He just took the money. Yes, I mean, we talked, didn't we, briefly right. about Moon Knight and Magnolia's Ron Hutchinson's yes. wonderful play about the difficult birth of Gone with the Wind. And you, but you couldn't make it up. And it's apparently it's true that he and Selznick did have this weird relationship and did bash it out in five days or whatever. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, but that, that and that what comes over in your play again. I, I kept thinking like father, like daughter. I really did, even though it was to do with the tension between them and, and the sorrow. She, she she is very vulnerable, but. He's the one who's, I think he's the one who's taking tablets to, takes pills to wake up and write and pills yes, to sleep. Yes, exactly. So why would he expect her to do different? Exactly. And, and since I've written the play, I actually have met Jenny's boyfriend, and he told me something which kind of, kind of shook me a little bit, which is that Jenny and, and Ben's wife, Rose, uh, believed that it was not a heart attack he died from, but an overdose of secondals. Oh. Which, of course, when Jenny died, that's how she died as well. Oh, that's so tragic. And the boyfriend, mm. 10 years after Jenny's death, tried to kill himself with second alls, oh. was res resuscitated and has a big tracheotomy scar. So it's, mm. uh, it's just a horrible legacy in a way. or just mm. It's a tragedy because these people obviously had these wonderful lives with 
nothing but mm. you know great things for them, and they just uh, gave themselves to their causes, and they paid a terrible price. Yeah. Now, her vulnerability comes out. You've got two fantastic actors here. Yes, Samantha Dakin plays Jenny Hecht, and Paul Eason plays Ben Hecht. Right. Now, obviously, there's a massive age gap, but, the, but he does look so you know experienced, hard-bitten, apparently, obviously he said well, he isn't. Ben, um, as he says in the play, was 50 years old yeah. when she was born. He, there was, you know, a sh- show, and everyone did think that he was her grandfather. Mm-hmm. And Ben was 70 when she was 20, mm-hmm. and that's that's really, uh, that was the, the, the lot of the problem, you know, mm-hmm. for, for her, that when he died, she really lost that anchor in her life. And uh, for a while, she was all right, but, you know, when, when the hard times hit, mm-hmm. she really had no one to go to. The mother was an enabler, uh, didn't really ever confront her, and then the mother, unfortunately, after Jenny overdosed, uh, uh, became a recluse for the last eight years of her life. It was very, very sad. And all, and there's no relatives. There's no, there's no. The estate goes to the Ben Heck Library, uh, the Newberry Library in Chicago. There was no ever. And it's funny when I met the boyfriend, I went down to visit him in San Diego because he had never uh, been ever reached by any biographer because he was under another name. And uh, uh, I asked him, uh, "Did Jenny have any children?" You know, because I was curious if there had been any, because, you know, they were so sex, but she hadn't, um, which yeah. I was actually hoping she had. So the lines died out. The line died out, mm. yes. Which is terrible, because there's obviously this gift, and she had inherited it. She did, mm. and, uh, and she was phenomenally uh, talented. I saw her perform at least six times myself, mm. and I was totally infatuated with her. Uh, uh, of course, she'd be walking naked through the audience saying, I'm not allowed to love who I please, and people would grab her, and... It was incredibly brave and making a statement about freedom, and but it made a big impression on me as a young man, as a young artist. It makes hair look a bit pale. Hair, the musical, doesn't it? <laughs> hair bothered, uh, uh, borrowed quite quite a bit from the Living Theater. Mm-hmm. Um, living Theater, yeah, I mean that was that was it was all came out of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the European theaters at the time. The Arto, style of isn't it, it? Yeah. Arto, mm-hmm. Grotowski. Mm-hmm. And very in, much Grotowski, yeah. uh, Especially the way they used their bodies physically. Because mm-hmm. uh, what we don't really get in the play, because we just didn't have it in the space, is it's to really see the artistry of the living mm-hmm. theater and how they were able to uh, communicate what they were talking with using their bodies as, mm-hmm. as expressions and stuff. And, and the actual discipline it all took, we don't really get that sense from the play, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, I, suppose, I suppose that is a shame, but um, and it, it, uh, it's funny to say that a play play provokes further reading but it does and I think that's a good thing <laughs> well I, I my plays I, I like to do that yeah. I like to do that because I, I I try to do plays that are narrative nonfiction that mm. will get people some information and mm. also entertain and then get them to go back and look uh, my second play uh, I based on a Wikipedia page it's called <laughs> search Paul Clayton Paul Clayton is another forgotten figure in history mm. he was Bob Dylan's uh, first musical mentor mm. and uh, an amazing man he had uh, 10 albums when Bob arrived in Greenwich Village and uh, he showed Bob the whole folk singing ropes and Bob paid him back by stealing one of Paul's songs which became Don't Think Twice It's Alright and Paul let it go because he was in love with Bob he was a gay man who was Bob's friend until he you know until he committed suicide mm. tragically in 1967 Is he Jewish or non-Jewish? Paul Clayton was not mm. Jewish no yeah. There has to be a non-Jew somewhere in the story. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's go back to the Jews for a minute, or at okay. least to the, yes, ones in, to the ones in this play. So yeah. she comes over in Samantha's very... It's a glowing performance. What it, she looks incredibly healthy, and yet there is this vulnerability. And I felt... I mean, it's the way you write it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the living theatre was sort of using her... 
so much, and that's you give them dialogue, or you're, you've got two. They characters. did use it. I mean, certainly in the beginning, Ben also threw a lot of money to the theater too, just because they were happy that Jenny was happy. I mean, you know, as parents, they they were enablers. You know, they were wealthy parents who gave her everything she wanted, and um, and the theater. You know, having a hect among the company did give them a little bit of publicity here and there, so they used her in that. And then she was young and beautiful. She was one of the young, you know, the youngest mm. members of the company. I probably think she was the youngest member of the company. And they, you know, she, they, you could say they exploited her, and I would say they did exploit her. But at the same time, she was willing to, she wanted to be part of it. That's all she wanted. And she was, as we say in the play, she wanted to prove to everyone she was not a Jewish American princess. She was a guerrilla theater warrior, and that's what she did. It's interesting. I know there's, there's no parallel really with Patty Hearst, but it just reminded me a bit of the Patty Hearst case. And that, that was, there's a girl who had, Absolutely. Yeah. when and she was yeah, kidnapped, had something. Yeah, it's the whole Stockholm something. Syndrome, yes. where you start mm. identifying with your mm. captors. And yes, there's a lot to it. And in the play, and again, a thing I did not realize, in the play we I added this story after I met the boyfriend who told me the story about Jenny before she came to the theater and what had happened to her and she was living by herself in New York and said mm -hmm. 17 she had her parents again had given her an apartment and she wanted to be a flamenco guitarist and mm -hmm. hung around uh, this flamenco world and there was a, a very famous uh, a flamenco dance troupe Carmen Amaya's dance troupe and she uh, lost her virginity to one of the young dancers who happened to be Carmen Amaya's uh, personal stud and to pay a teacher a gypsy lesson she had uh, members of the band gang rape Jenny mm -hmm. and so and Jenny uh joined the theater when Jenny found the theater she was really broken and depressed and the theater took her in and gave her love and gave her purpose mm -hmm. and uh, they resurrected her and that was their hold on her ultimately and uh, Ben never understood that because he didn't know the story yeah. but, but that meant more free in inverted commas free love didn't it yes that's what was going on at that time that was a revolution there was a sexual mm -hmm. revolution going on and she was part of that and yeah, I mean that—that's—that's that's, that was part of the you know breaking of the taboos of the time, and she threw herself into that. And I guess she felt you know she had a, something to say about it. And it gave, in a way, it took away the pain perhaps of having that gang rape. You know mm -hmm. that you know, she gave her power to be able to do it on her own terms. Your director Anna Anna Ostrigan is yes. the director. Yeah, and I the producer was Erwin Erwin yeah. uh, Olian. Yeah. I just wanted to mention her because her staging is the staging is very interesting. Your designer. The design, I don't th I think Anna designed it as well. Yeah. I don't think we well, had a, a credit designer. No, she did designer. a good job yeah. there. I mean, because we've got this sort of, it's, we do have these two different areas. Right. One is the room where Ben Hecht's actual room with his clutter in it. Right. And the other is... A communal, you know, communal theater bedroom. Uh, you know, where, yeah, you know, people shared, com, you know, people shared the beds together. It was, yeah. it was a, you know, the, what, what they called free love in those days. And, uh, mm. and that was, you know, in itself revolutionary. And in a way... I think Anna, Anna stressed that, you know, mm. more than probably at a little out of proportion, but it was an easy thing to understand, mm. uh, an anti-establishment attitude in that yeah. way. Well, well, I should say about Ben's apartment, which I always mm. wanted to have, because uh, in, in reality, uh, Ben had won one Oscar, um, and that Oscar was a doorstop. <laughs> That's not? a little thought of, of Hollywood. <laughs> it was just a doorstop. Mm. Mm. Well, back, back in back in the, 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 the land of free love, the way she staged it, because the man and the woman... Or the one is, is her boyfriend, Steve, mm. and the other one was a woman we call May Mountain, who is a compendium of a lot of the living theatre women. Right, yes, exactly. So she isn't Judith Molina, but, no, but Judith no, but may be in know, there. Pop, yes, exactly. Who is a famous, one of the co-founders. But they, the way it's staged, they're behind her, so that you know you can sort of feel that they're puppeteers almost. I've got that 
they I are. found them very it, it, sinister. That's exactly correct. And mm-hmm. and she's she's having to buy all the lexicon mm-hmm. that they're throwing at her. They're they're constantly pressuring her. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's a tug of war, and it's also uh, in the play a fight for styles too, because part of the play is done as a Ben Hecht movie, like a witty repartee back and forth, and the other part is more like the living theater part, and in the, in, in the later scene, when the living theater really comes out full, it's like they're fighting for the audience's attention, mm-hmm. and Ben, you know, they finally let Ben get in there, and then he basically hits her with the news that, you know, she's died, because part of the conceit of the play is really that these are two ghosts talking mm-hmm. to each other, and, and, and trying to figure out what really happened in their lives. Mm. And uh, because they, we spin scenarios back and forth of their lives, and that's uh, part of the conceit. Yeah. Well, luckily, as part of the conceit, although they're apparently on the phone, you, you, there's a sparing use of said telephone. You know, you know, they start with the phone and then they talk. Then we just drop. That, that's yeah. exactly and right. It works. Yeah. Your work for me, anyway. And I think actually having it in that very small space in the Leicester Square Theatre, um, lounge works, because you were almost in the. Sp- with them, it's very you? intimate, and I mean, for the people lucky enough to see it, I think it's a very powerful experience. Uh, you get to see some wonderful performances, and mm. like I said, we, you're entertained, you learn something you did not know uh, about these two marvelous people who yeah. I hoped would be remembered. Yes, isn't it lovely that you can actually, nowadays, you can go away and actually watch online a performance by the Living Theatre on YouTube, so you can actually, you can, you know, it's yes. fine. I think it's good that you push us in that direction. I, I, I always uh, feel really good when people say, hey, I went back and I, and, and I learned more about this. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I feel that's good. And, you know, like I said, that's the style of theater I'm very interested in, which is narrative nonfiction. Yeah, yes, well, I am too, as it happens. So, you know, that's two of us, because I've written some, some of those sorts of... I've written community plays, and they mm-hmm. were about real events. So, yeah. yes, and I know where you're coming from. Yeah. And mine have tended... You know, haven't all been Jewish, but some of them have. Mm-hmm. So I just want to very briefly sort of just go back to the, the Jewish thing, which is... Um, I, again, this is you sending me off to do research. So I, I found that Judith Molina, this founder of the mm-hmm. Rhythm Theatre, as I was saying earlier to you before we started recording, who died this year, you know, also Jewish. And the, 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 the Living Theatre were quite a, a Jewish outfit. They, it, they it, had it was. weird I mean, status. certainly in the, yeah. you know, and they were, they were Jews the way Jews mm. like the Kabbalah. I mean, they were, yeah, you know, yeah. they, were, uh, yes. <laughs> they, were, they were extreme Jews in a sense. Because yes. she, I mean, she came from a very religious family. Mm. Her, she came from a family of rabbis, basically. Judith Molina. Uh, generational mm. rabbis. And, you know, being a woman, she obviously, no one expected her to become the yentl of her time, and she didn't. But a lot of the uh, the mysticism they brought into it uh, did come from the Kabbalah. You know, they borrowed from that as well as they borrowed from Buddhism as well. But, yeah, there was always a Jewish under, un, underpinning to the whole thing. You're very well served by my my two sinister members of the um, of the uh, living theater and of course yes we have Tom Hunter who's mm. playing uh, Steve Thompson her boyfriend and, but though the character really is a, a an amalgam of a lot of the members of the, of the living theater because Steve her boyfriend was not one of the lead actors that was that was uh, a Stephen Ben Israel another mm. Steve mm. And another Jew another yes <laughs> yes he was and uh, uh, you know as a young actor when I saw him perform I wanted to be him more than anything in the mm. world Oh. And then the other member of the th- uh, of our company who plays a member of the Living Theater is Laura Perdelsky. Uh, she plays a character called May Mountain, and she also plays Ben's secretary, Magda, who is a, a Hungarian survivor of the Holocaust, who is, becomes Ben's uh, secretary. And one interesting thing I don't get into in the play is that Ben's wife at the time, Rose, who's an off-screen present and who he's cheating on with his secretary, also at one time was his secretary when he was married. 
All right. So he's a serial so ben, cheater uh, with secretaries. Yes, I just felt it wasn't going to serve the serve the story to kind of put mm. that in. It makes us, but uh, yes, that was true. I mean, people are consistent, I guess, you know. And I guess in a way, if if you are the the other woman, and then you become the other woman, you know, that's fair game. Just only one thing you just mentioned, the mother there. So, so she she's got a sort of hands-on father in the play, even if he's somewhere else, he's untouched with her. You know, that's your conceit. Right. What? Where was her mum in all this then? Her mom was up in Nyack, you know, writing letters to her and just encouraging her and sending money. She was the ultimate uh, enabler and never really. Uh, you know, if she complained about the boyfriend or what she was doing, it was never to Jenny. She never really stopped Jenny. She always tried to encourage her. It was her only child. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was, as Ben talks about, was, you know, just had been brought up in a rarefied atmosphere. You know, Carl Sandburg wrote a poem. Picasso painted a sketch of her. I mean, she had just had this amazing life. And then they had gotten her on Broadway so early that she kind of set out on her own. And the mother just sat back and, and never really actually... I don't even think ever came to the shows in New York when she was playing there. Mm. I think that's a shame. So she, maybe she felt very guilty afterwards because I suspect they, they had mm. tremendous guilt about what mm. had happened to the daughter. You know that they mm. couldn't control her and they just couldn't make her go the right way. It's just uh, mm. it was just the times. It was a it was a difficult time. I mean, as uh, Jenny as Jenny says about her father, who you know he changed his life when he ran smack dab into history and he couldn't really mm. turn away when he realized the Holocaust was going on. No one was talking about it. The other thing we talk about, which is the Jewish subject, and we should mention, is that book Perfidy. Now, if you have, have you probably haven't read this book. It's no, a harrowing story. And unfortunately, when he wrote it, he's so angry in the book that it doesn't come across as a journalistic piece, which it should. But basically, Palestine at the time had a man in Hungary. And they knew about what was going on, that there was a final solution that was going on. The Hungarian Jews were the last to be to be exterminated. And they were very concerned, the, the Germans were, because they did not have a lot of soldiers to control them because they were fighting on two fronts at that point and losing. And they made a deal with Israel to let 1,500 out, what was called the Kastner, the Kastner Jews, the best Jews, to come settle in Palestine. And the other ones, they kept quiet, and eventually they were all murdered. Oh, and that was, Kastner was the one in charge of that. Kastner was put on trial and was found guilty. And then an appeal... He was let go. When he walked out of the courtroom, he was assassinated mm. by a survivor. By a survivor? Mm -hmm. mm, that sounds... I didn't know It's a story about that, that no one no. knows no. about. No, because it's no. embarrassing for Israel because they were complicit with the Nazis at that point. And it's right there. It was Ben-Gurion I'm talking about. him. Theodor Herzl himself said about those people who were murdered, that was the dust of Europe. It's a terrible thing because it's exactly what the Nazis were doing, trying to keep, you know, sort of... Survival of the fittest right, exactly. in the wrong way. The Aryan mm. being better than the mm. Jews. And yes, they were making decisions, quality decisions mm. on lives. Mm. No, it's a terrible... And that's why it's been buried. No one mm. talked about it. And, and he was just vilified as someone who was turning Jew against Jew and mm. giving uh, ammunition to the anti-Semites. And they just buried that book. But if you read the book today, it's, mm. it's a frightening account of what had happened. And when did he write Perfidy? When did he write Perfidy? 1955, mm. I think. The trial was 1953. See how that by the, the new state yeah. of Israel would have hated that. Yeah. Hmm. More yeah, no, it, was, it was dangerous again. Yeah. Just just like you know you know during like we talked about during the beginning of World, World War Two when FDR had 
his Jew in the White House, which was a gentleman from the West Coast who people in the West Coast know well called Rabbi Stephen Weiss, and that was the one who he used to keep the Jews quiet about mm -hmm. the Holocaust so they wouldn't hurt American morale for the war. FDR being Roosevelt, we, we have to we have to. FDR, that's right, Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, yeah. who really was not a big friend of the Jews, mm -hmm. frankly, and he was very interested in supporting his ally, the British, in, their, mm -hmm. in the White Paper. But it should be pointed out, his his wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, was very instrumental in, in helping Jews escape. Mm -hmm. uh, but again, especially the best Jews, like Eleanor was involved with getting out Chagall and some of the great mm -hmm. painters, you know, crossing from Marseille or across the Pyrenees to Spain. Mm -hmm. Yes, that was the route, wasn't it? Very, as well as very, very, uh, Fry was mm. the uh, American diplomat yes. that helped. Yes, the, the, we, we've had um, a musical called Grand oh, Tour. I didn't you know. You know Jerry Herman's musical Grand Tour, I which don't actually know. is about that. It's exactly yeah. about the whole of the, the Jews in Marseille getting them out across the Pyrenees. Exactly yeah. about people getting yeah. out that way. Part, yeah. Well, that's partly what it's about. Yeah. And Fry, yes, is part yeah, of that story, diplomat. of course. Yes, yes. Right, okay, lots more reading for me and <laughs> lots more subjects for plays for you, I think. <laughs> I think so. There's just people who really need to be remembered. So what next then? Well, for the play, I, I actually am going to go back. Uh, in New York, there's the National Yiddish Theater. is interested in, uh, I think, doing a stage reading, and I'm going to come back and try to you know, see if I can put that together with them, uh, at least to show it off in New York. And I'd love to be able to play the thing in Los Angeles because I think it would have great uh, meaning there. And I haven't, there's not a lot of theater in, the, in, in Los Angeles, but uh, and I haven't really, even though I live there, I really haven't really exposed it there at all. So I'm, I'm planning on doing something with it there. And I've got my folk musical, I mentioned Search Paul Clay, and then I have a new play, which I'm going to do something with this summer. And that play also is narrative nonfiction. It's called High Time drop acid with Leary and friends and it's a 12-hour LSD trip with Timothy Leary, Alan Watts, Alan Ginsberg and three amazing women in a house in 1963 in Newton, Massachusetts. It's a guided trip mm. and it's uh, set against the day that uh, Leary and Alpert were fired from Harvard so it's the day that acid went rogue so to speak. And it's quite interesting. It's got modern dance in it and uh, light shows and it's uh, very uh, ambitious. I'm probably glad I asked. So are you saying it's 12 hours long? No, it's, 12 hour, it's, it's, it's a 12-hour acid trip in under two hours. I was just going to say, because this plays <laughs> yeah. an, another... No, I do tighter plays. You do short shows, don't sure, you? Yes, this yes. is, what, this one is hour probably, 10. Yeah. Yes, this would probably be about 90, um, yeah. the, the new one. No, so no, I'm sure we'll feel we've been on... Uh, so that's my 60s <laughs> trilogy. I've, I've completed it and I can move on. Funnily <laughs> enough, you took that words out of my mouth again. But I, I've I, got to get it out of my system. What is this with you in the 60s? Yes, exactly. Unfortunately, that's my... I had to get it out of my system. That's yeah. my 60s trilogy, and I can move on now. Excellent. Right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure, it. Judy.